You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Amen. Amen. If you're able to remain standing, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Beginning in verse uh, 21, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, verse 23, Jesus continues, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Verse 30, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then, verse 32, the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers, that is the torturers, until he should pay all his debt. Verse 35, so also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. Virtually every time Jesus speaks of forgiveness from God, the very next thing he wants his people to think about is forgiveness toward others. You've received vertical forgiveness from God. Immediately, God wants his people to think about horizontal forgiveness of others. Immediately. We are continuing now in our study of the gospel of Matthew. And we come to this parable. The parable of the unforgiving uh, servant uh, from Jesus. And I believe this parable, more than any other, has, has done more to shape Christian life. Uh, personally, when I, when I am uh, engaged in my daily life, uh, this parable comes to mind more than any other parable. How much have I been forgiven? 
Therefore, how much ought I forgive those who have sinned against me? Since chapter 16, Jesus has been focused on the development and shaping of his people, the church. He's been teaching what his people what it means to be the church, both in our confession, in our doctrine, what we believe, and in our conduct, how we behave. This whole section has been about the shaping of God's people, the church. In our time last week, we learned that Jesus cares deeply about the holiness of his people. He cares deeply about the purity and holiness of his church. And therefore, he walked us through what is called the process for church discipline. Beyond the process of church discipline, which is very helpful and accessible, Jesus also gives us insight into the heart of God for all of his saints especially those who are erring or drifting from the fold. The heart of the shepherd was revealed in our text last week. And what we learn from our time is that all discipline from God is for the purpose of restoration. God never disciplines to push away or to shame. God only pursues discipline in order to bring in and to restore. And at the heart of his discipline is the heart of a loving father. Last week's text was an incredible insight into the heart of God for his people. And now in our text this morning, listen, because of Christ's emphasis on restoration in the process of discipline, because of that emphasis... Peter poses a question regarding forgiveness. You can see where Peter's thinking comes from. Okay, if someone sins against me, I'm supposed to settle that debt with them alone. They repent, I forgive. So Peter raises his hand and says, Master, I've got a very practical question. What if this process just keeps going on and on? Someone sins against me, I forgive them. Someone sins, but what, what if there's no end in sight? And so we get the practical question in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Of course, in, in raising the seven times, Peter is, is uh, hoping to sound pious uh, because the rabbinic scholars at that time had agreed that only forgiving someone up to three times was sufficient. And so Peter thought, well, let me just bump that up to seven to the number of completion and maybe I'll catch some extra brownie points from rabbi as many as seven times. But listen, Jesus then responds to Peter with an answer that has reverberated throughout church history for two millennia that is so radical and it, it confronts every human faculty to understand it. Jesus responds in verse 22 to Peter's hypothetical. Jesus says, I do not say that you forgive them seven times, but 77 times. Some of the older translations, and I like it better, say this, I do not say seven times, but 70 times seven. And what is Jesus saying? is he saying, okay, you can stop forgiving someone after the 490th time. No, of course not. Jesus is saying, as my people, the church, remember he's developing and shaping the church. He's saying, as my people, you are to grant others 
unlimited forgiveness. Unlimited forgiveness. Not three times, not seven times, unlimited forgiveness. My goodness. No one saw this coming. It's shocking. How many times have you read that? It's still shocking. Why is it shocking to us? Because I know this week I'm going to have to extend forgiveness to someone. It's a, it's a daily, weekly occurrence. And Jesus says, as my people, you are to house unlimited forgiveness. Unlimited. In the kingdom of heaven, listen, forgiveness will have the final word. Not discipline, not sin, not confrontation. Forgiveness will have the final word in the kingdom of God. Unconditional, unlimited forgiveness of others. Okay, clearly this is hyperbole, right? Jesus is just overstating his point, right? We can just sort of write this off as Jesus is hyperbolic teaching. Or is it? Well, then Jesus goes on to give a parable that shows that he is very serious about this principle of unlimited forgiveness. Following this exchange with Peter, Jesus goes on to give a parable which will show his disciples then and now how it is possible to extend unlimited forgiveness. So the principle is you are to Never stop forgiving. That's the principle that Jesus gives. It is a a mountainous task. And then the parable will illustrate how it's possible to walk out the principle. You following? Okay. In this parable we have, if you're a note taker, a picture of forgiveness. That's the first movement. We have a picture of forgiveness. Then we have what I've entitled, and now I'm kind of regretting titling it this because it's really long, the jaw-dropping hardness of heart. That's point two, jaw-dropping hardness of heart. And then finally, we have a powerful warning for those who claim to follow Christ. That's where we're going. Let's first look at a picture of forgiveness. Look at verses 23 and following again. Jesus says, therefore, now he's going to develop the principle Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since, verse 25, he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him. That's the word proskuneo. He's in worshipful position, pleading with the king, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. I am not a math person, so there's that. But to say that someone owes 10,000 talents is like saying you owe a gazillion dollars. It's it's where the calculator gives you the E because it can't produce enough zeros. A talent was the highest form of currency. It's 20 years of labor and income. 
and this person owned 10,000 worth of 20 years of income. So some commentators have it into the billions, some have it into the trillions. I just say gazillion. This guy owed a gazillion dollars. In other words, it's an amount that he could not pay back in a thousand lifetimes. And so the king in this parable, knowing that this servant is not going to be able to get his money back, decides to leverage his collateral, him and his family and his stuff, and sell all of that into bond service and at least get that. And in response, the man who owed the, the, the debt falls to his knees. He collapses under the weight of the consequences. And he begins imploring the king. It's all he has left. And he says, have patience with me. I will pay you everything. It was probably this man's idealism that got him into this kind of debt. And now it's his idealism that leads him to believe he can get out of it. I will pay you everything back. Answer, no, you can't. It's impossible. The weight is so immense. It's so pervasive. This man was blind when he accumulated the debt. And he's just as blind if he thinks he can pay it back. So let's stop for a moment and think about what Jesus is teaching us so far in the parable. Very simply, Jesus is teaching us that every human soul on planet earth owes an incalculable debt to God who is the king of kings. An insurmountable, an unpayable debt to God. That is to say, because of our rebellion as a human race, and listen, because of our rebellion personally as individuals, we have accumulated a debt to God so deep and so profound that like this servant, we could not pay God back in a thousand lifetimes. And don't miss this incredibly important detail. The man is brought before the king alone. He's brought before the king alone. No family is with him. No church is with him. No clan is with him. No parents or coaches advocating for his character before the king. No, he is alone before the king. You know this. The hardest moments you face and I face in life are faced alone. Even if you have a wonderful community, wonderful relationships, eventually you have to deal with things alone. And that becomes the hardest moments of your life. If you've lost someone you deeply love, the funeral isn't the hardest part. It's when you're alone. If you suffer from anxiety or depression, the hardest moments come after the distractions are gone and you're alone. And you're tossing and turning on your bed, you're alone. When the cancer diagnosis comes in, it's when all the people leave and all the condolences leave and you're alone. 
The hardest moments in life are faced alone. But look right at me, nothing compares. Nothing compares to the moment when you and I will be alone before God and he's collecting on his debt. There is nothing more terrifying than that moment if you do not have payment. It will make all of life's tragedies seem light in comparison. And so friends, the Bible is crystal clear. We don't agree, do we, on everything from church to church, denomination to denomination. And we could lament a lot of things that we wish we could agree on. But this, if you follow Christ, we agree on. And someone's calling me. Every human being who has ever lived will be brought before the king of glory. And because his holiness and justice demands it, he will collect on his debt. He will. And if God sees no payment for sin, no means to make the debt whole, he will order us to be removed from his presence forever. And therefore, this parable teaches that we owe an unpayable debt to God. And therefore, all we can do is appeal to his mercy and his forgiveness. We don't have time to pay it back. We don't have capacity to pay it back. Well, to his utter shock, back to the parable and surprise, the debtor's plea for time is followed by total forgiveness from God. Total forgiveness. Look at verse 27. And out of pity, literally out of compassion for him, the master of that servant, the king, released him and forgave him. That's redundant. To forgive means to release. I release you of the burden. I'm no longer collecting on the debt. He pushes him out and says, you are free. You are free of this debt totally and completely. No payment necessary. No collateral required. This is a picture of total forgiveness. The debt is expunged and no payments are to be made. Unbelievable. The servant was asking for time and he got total forgiveness. Well, this picture of forgiveness now leads us now to the second movement of the parable, jaw-dropping hardness of heart. Look at verse 28 and following. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. If this were a movie that we were watching, none of us would love it because 
in the previous scene, our eyes would have been filled with tears. We would have been moved by the compassion of the king. Perhaps tears are falling down our cheeks. But before we could even wipe away the tears, the next scene happens. And we're utterly shocked at what the man who was just forgiven does. The next scene baffles the mind. The man forgiven of incalculable amounts of debt, finds someone who owes him four months of funds. And he shakes him down for the money. In the parable, he chokes him out. Pay what you owe. I didn't do this math. Someone, one commentator did it. The second servant's servant's debt was one Six hundred thousandth of the man who was just forgiven by the king. I don't know what that means. It sounds like a really small fraction. However, four months worth of income is substantial. If you didn't have the, the forgiveness of the first debt in mind and you only had the four months, it feels really substantial. It is a lot of money, four months of income. But compared to what he was forgiven, when you contrast it, it is a fraction of a fraction. And not even worth comparing. So what happened? What happened? How is this possible? Is this possible? We get a clue for how this is possible back in the previous scene. Again, when the man is faced with the crushing consequences of his debt before the king, again, notice the servant does not plead for forgiveness. He asks for more time. In other words, he tries to work a deal with the king. Another way to say this is he doesn't understand how much trouble he's in. He doesn't fully appreciate just how much trouble he is in and he views his relationship with the king as purely transactional. I know I owe you this amount. Would you please give me more time and I will pay you back. His relationship with the king is transactional. And because he doesn't appreciate the trouble he's in, He can't appreciate the gift that was given. Do you hear me? Because he doesn't and can't appreciate the trouble he's in, he can't appreciate the gift he was given. And because he bases his relationship with the king as transactional, then it was natural for him to view his relationships horizontally as transactional. You owe me money. You pay me now or you go to the courts. You go to the jailers. Transactional before the king, transactional before others. And so why is Jesus telling this parable? And don't forget who he's telling the parable to. The church. This is not a mixed group. This is not Jesus' warning to the world. He's telling this parable to the church. Jesus is saying, some of you are doing this very thing that this wicked servant is doing. You don't understand how much you've been forgiven. 
And your relationship with God is purely transactional. And therefore, your relationship with others are purely transactional. You're not loving people. You're using people. And therefore, when someone wrongs you or you are owed a debt, you don't think about the immeasurable debt you were forgiven. No, you think about the immeasurable offense against you. And this is, in the church, the most dangerous predicament I can think of. To have a good theology for sin and forgiveness and for that theology not to penetrate the heart. Because what happens is you become inoculated to the, to the words, to the ideas. Inoculated. You have an antibody. Forgiveness means nothing. It's just another word. And it's just resting on your heart. And if somebody were to ask you in a test, what does forgiveness mean? You could give them a great theological answer, but your heart is not moved by it. There is no more scary a predicament than that. And this is exactly the predicament of this wicked servant. He can't appreciate what has just been done to him. And therefore he goes to someone who owes him a fraction of what he was just forgiven and he shakes him down. So this morning, you may be right now able to identify someone with a name that owes you a debt. And of course, we're not talking about money. You've been wounded by their sin against you. Their actions and words were uncalled for, hurtful, wounding, harmful. You might be able to think of multiple people right now in this setting as we're going through this text that's coming to mind. And the question is, what are we going to do with that? What are we going to do with that? I realize that this topic requires a lot of wisdom and nuance. For instance, listen, I don't think that Jesus is asking you for the sake of forgiveness to put yourself into a situation where abuse or harm is inevitable. In other words, forgiveness of an offense doesn't require that you hang around for the next black eye. Forgiveness does not mean that you cannot call the authorities if somebody has broken the law. Forgiveness doesn't mean that there are no consequences for sinful and dangerous behavior. And so maybe some of you here are, are, have used forgiveness in that way. You've twisted this good doctrine and you've used it to keep other people in danger. And you told them, you need to forgive. And you kept them in danger. That's an abuse of forgiveness. Forgiveness says this, always. This is what forgiveness always says. I am going to absorb the debt that you owe me because of this offense. But I am not going to, and I am not going to retaliate. Instead, I'm going to entrust vengeance to the Lord. 
over and over and over again throughout redemptive history, when Israel was affronted, God would say, don't return evil for evil. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. I will repay. So forgiveness says, I'm going to absorb that debt, the cost of that pain. I am not going to return in like, and I'm going to entrust myself to the vengeance of the Lord. Forgiveness says, you owe me a lot. But it is peanuts compared to what I've been released from. See, the only way to move on and move forward in forgiveness is if you compare the offense with what you have been released from. This is why we preach the gospel every Sunday or try to preach the gospel every Sunday here because it's a reminder of the debt. Everything is born out of this forgiveness. If it's actually true that I am set free of my debt, now I can live as a truly free person. Now I can be kind and not fake it. (laughs) Now I can not go extract what people owe me because I can compare now their offense with my offense. But if you forget what you have been released from, you will be in bondage and controlled by others every single day. And you will want to exact revenge or you'll bury it deep within and think that time is going to heal all wounds. You know what time does for unforgiven sin? It creates resentment and bitterness. And then you take it out on other people. So we have a picture of forgiveness. And it's followed by jaw-dropping hardness of heart. Finally, this parable ends with a powerful warning from Jesus. Look at verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, notice this, I've missed this for years. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Is this not an echo of discipline in the previous section? that there are consequences for behavior. God sees everything. He sees everything. And so the fellow servants witness this hard-heartedness and they're baffled. What is going on? This man was just released of all of this debt and now he's choking someone who owes him a fraction. We need to report this. This is not okay. Verse 32 Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt, which means never, he's not getting out. (laughs) Life sentence. Verse 35, so also my heavenly father, here it is, Here's the warning. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That means that the forgiveness of God has to penetrate your heart if you are to forgive others from your heart. Cheap sorries are not enough. They're better than nothing, but they're not forgiveness. 
Jesus says, from your heart, you are to forgive. From the essence, the sum of your soul, you are to forgive. How are you to forgive in that way if you have not been forgiven that way? So back to Peter's initial question. How many times, Lord? Frederick Bruner in his commentary says this, quote, Jesus can require infinite forgiveness of us because God has given infinite forgiveness to us. Another writes, quote, the Christian life is born in forgiveness and it must therefore characterize us all the way through our relationships. The Christian life was born in forgiveness. That's how you became a Christian. And therefore, forgiveness must permeate every human relationship. How many times? As many times as it takes. Furthermore, this parable teaches us that one should not expect that they've actually been forgiven by God if, like this wicked servant, they harbor unforgiveness toward others. There's no assurance if you harbor unforgiveness, you are unwilling to forgive. There is no assurance that you've actually been forgiven. The warning could not be more severe. As with all of Jesus' parables, the reality is more severe than the illustration. And if that's true of the warning, that is also true of the picture of forgiveness. And we'll end here. The reality of forgiveness from God is far more brilliant than the picture. Full pardon for sin is available right now. Right now. Full pardon for sin is available through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. But you can't negotiate with God. You can't treat this as a deal. That's what legalism is. It's negotiating with God. I'll give you, man, I'll give you Sunday and maybe late Saturday night. You give me Monday to Friday. And I'll pray before meals. There's no negotiating. Because the picture or the reality is more brilliant than the picture. In the gospel, the king brings forth his son as a propitiation, as a payment for you. And unlike Abraham and Isaac, whereby God stopped the dagger from falling upon Isaac, this God does not stop the dagger from falling upon his son, but sees it all the way through. That's what the payment is. Therefore, there is no negotiating. It's all or nothing. And when full pardon is received, God says you are not only free to go, but you are also free to come. This is where the gospel is more brilliant than the picture. Listen to Marcus Lone, an Anglican bishop. He writes this, quote, to speak of forgiveness is to say, you may go. You have been let off your penalty. But to speak of the justification of the gospel, it is to say, you may come. 
Do you see the difference? Mere forgiveness, you may go. Justification from a loving father, you may come. Come all the way to me. The reality of grace is more brilliant than the illustration. In the gospel, we are not only freed from our debt, but we are also invited to dine with the king who is now our father. And so that invitation and that warning is both landing this morning. There is an assurance of forgiveness of sins, but this warning is so severe. So what do you do? What do you do with this warning? You do, with what, you do exactly what all God's people have done for millennia. You cry out and you say, search my heart, O God. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lord, search me, cleanse me with the washing of water. Cleanse me with hyssop. See where I'm holding resentment against my spouse or my brother-in-law or my mother or whoever, and I'm holding that, and I think I'm going to be okay. Reveal that to me because this warning is landing on me, oh God. That's what you do. That's the call to action. Search my heart, oh God. Search me. You do that honestly, God is not gonna play hide and seek with you. He's not gonna play games. He will reveal and he will give you the courage and the grace to move forward to forgive others of their debts. That vertical grace, forgiveness that we've been given, God wants us to immediately think how this applies horizontally. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Let me pray. Father, we need your help. This is a severe warning. Enshrined in the warning is a beautiful picture of forgiveness and grace. But Lord, we don't want to play games. Lord, so I pray that your spirit would prompt us to pray, to be serious with this. To be courageous. Give us the strength to conquer our egos. Give us the strength to say where we were wrong. Give us the opportunity to forgive. I pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.